0: Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hi again, guys. Um, so excited uh, for the doings here in the next month or so. One reason in particular is we um, getting ready for the 20th annual Compliance and Ethics Institute uh, put on by the SCCE. It's going to be in Las Vegas um, this year. It's going to be live this year. Last year, it was virtual. And it's going to be September 19th through the 22nd uh, uh, here uh, about a month from now. You know, Knock on wood, hopefully, uh, assuming things don't get tremendously worse uh, with the pandemic between now and then. Um, I'm excited uh, just potentially for being there in person uh, after being away for uh, two years, but also uh, I'm going to be um, speaking twice uh, during the event. The first time, which I'll talk more about in a subsequent episode, I'm going to be talking about Code of Conduct, which as you all know, if you listen to my podcast, I talk about a lot. I'm going to, on Tuesday, uh, September the 21st, Uh, at 4 p.m. local time in Las Vegas be talking about lessons from 60 Code of Conduct projects. What are five things you need for a best-in-class code? Now, those of you who are um, uh, fans of this podcast and listen to this podcast quite a bit uh, have heard me opine uh, quite a bit about codes of conduct over the last five years, Um, but I do have a couple of um, pieces of information I think that are going to be helpful Uh, So if you are going to be attending in Las Vegas, I'm gonna love to see you in person. If not, it is also a virtual session. So if you go go to corporatecompliance.org and check out the information about this year's CEI, you can find out more about that if you're interested in that particular session. But what I wanna talk about today is some interesting new data and some some key takeaways uh, for compliance officers in sentencing commission data. And why this came up and why I was thinking about this is on the last day of the uh cei this year i'm going to be uh co-hosting a virtual uh session a breakout session on what's wednesday september the 22nd it's actually fairly early in the morning it's going to be 8 a.m on uh on that wednesday uh the 22nd uh and it is uh we're going to be talking uh or about looking back and looking forward at the sentencing guidelines. Uh, That's, when I say we, uh, I should mention that I'm going to be very pleased to be joined by, for that session, Kathleen Grilley, the General Counsel of the US Sentencing Commission, my former boss at the Sentencing Commission, uh, who is very knowledgeable, obviously, about the sentencing guidelines and their impact on organizations. Uh, And and so in preparing for this event, just a month from now, it's hard to believe it's coming up on us. Uh, The team over at the Sentencing Commission had put together some fresh data uh, for us to uh, present when we're talking about organizational guidelines and the impact on uh, organizations or companies and other organizations uh, that happen to find themselves in the situation where they're being sentenced. Uh, And I've talked about this distinction before. We talk about the sentencing guidelines quite a bit uh, in the compliance context. Uh, and for those, of us, for those of us who are new to the area, oftentimes the question is, why are we talking about uh, sentencing uh, when our organization's not in trouble, as far as I know, uh, is not under indictment, uh, is not facing a sentencing? Uh, well, as we all know, from, well, I say we all, well, as those of us who've been doing this for a while know, uh, the sentencing guidelines for organizations and in particular the section of the guidelines that talks about uh the expectations around compliance have become uh for the and at least initially back in 1991 uh so 30 years ago now is have, have become de facto the gold standard for expectations around an effective compliance program uh so when we look at sentencing guideline data it sometimes is not um white right on point for everybody because again these are organizations that have found themselves to be in a situation where they're in front of a federal judge and being sentenced where i find it's helpful and what i wanted to talk about today are just three little nuggets of information that come out of the sentencing uh commission's organizational data set that I think can be helpful in sort of illuminating the potential pitfalls, the serious pitfalls, which is companies and individuals finding themselves in front of a federal judge uh, uh, when there's misconduct and when uh, the compliance program uh, isn't effective or is at least not effective enough to catch that misconduct. So I wanted to talk just a little bit about some of those nuggets. Uh, For those of you who are interested, You can go to the Sentencing Commission's website, and that's ussc.gov, ussc.gov, and when you go to their homepage, there's lots of great information on this website, and you can learn more about the organization, the Sentencing Commission, particularly for those of you who are new to compliance and have, you know, heard about the sentencing guidelines and You probably if you haven't already at some point you're going to be engaged in a conversation with somebody probably somebody on the commercial side uh, a business leader who says you know you've mentioned these sentencing guidelines a couple of times what are those who who what's the sentencing commission why do we care about this well there's a lot of information at ussc.gov that will explain what the organization is, why it exists, what's its primary pur- what are the primary purposes of the sentencing commission. And also, really importantly, the second tab over on their, on their website is the research page. A big, big part of what the sentencing commission does is gather data. Uh, sentencing data for both individuals who are convicted of uh, offenses, but also or the organizations that year in, year out are convicted of offenses. And so that data is collected and it's reported out to both Congress and the public. And there is a book that is published annually that is available on the website in digital form called The Sourcebook, uh, The Federal Sentencing Sourcebook. And that has statistics about all of your federal offenses that individuals um, are going to be charged with but also has uh, specific data about organizations and if you look at one of the sub tabs under that research tab you will see that uh, you can go to the source book and once you click on the source book then there is um, a, a, a entire section that uh, subsection of the source book that's co- that is called organizational offender sentencing data it's near the bottom of that page once you look at the topics under the source book but when you open that up it will then give you all of the tables the the data tables that are in that section there's not a whole lot of them there's about a dozen of them but they're very interesting and they provide a lot of I think helpful data around sort of the demographics and and the the um, uh, the, the outcomes, uh, for organizations that get charged and then, uh, end up getting either convicted or plead guilty to criminal offenses. So today though, rather than do a big deep dive into all that information, because there is a lot of it. And I I may go, I may come back to this and, and do a whole, um, episode or two, um, on, uh, a little bit deeper dive, if you will, on on sentencing data. So if you're interested in that, please do let me know. And as always, you can always contact me at eric at moreheadconsulting.com or you can contact us on the homepage for the podcast. Uh, But there are a couple of, I think, interesting tidbits that are helpful for compliance officers or compliance professionals when you're preparing internal um presentations or you want to have some talking points points around uh expectations and the potential downside of misconduct at an organization now these can be helpful when you're training uh, managers or training rank and file so that they understand you know what are some of the real real world ramifications when the wheels come off but it's also helpful when you're talking to uh, executives or uh, uh, other um, managers in the business uh, on the business side of the organization to try to get them to better understand the real dangers that are out there for organizations if the worst happens. Um, you know, we can talk about debarment. You know, if your organization is a, a federal contractor, that's a serious. That could be a death knell for for at least a part of the business if if there's a conviction. Um, and then, generally speaking, we talk about fines you know million dollars here billion dollars there but it becomes i think and i was just talking to somebody about this the other day it can become sort of background noise Uh, or in the from the perception of somebody who's listening about volkswagen for example being being um charged with a crime and and uh having to pay billions of dollars in fines that's like a lightning strike um that's a uh I mean, we read the headlines about these large organizations, uh, and most—I um, think—that kind of just rolls off the back uh, of of the audience to a great extent. It's 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 Volkswagen. It's you know um, Walmart, or or worst case scenario, it's it's the mythical Enron that's out there somewhere in the in the universe, but that doesn't really have anything to do with us, right? And in particular, one thing that I want to point out, and this is true not only in the sentencing data that's available for 2020, um, that is that is available, the most current data that's available from the sentencing commission, but this is true going all the way back. I think as far as the data goes, you know, when I was at the sentencing commission back in the in the early 2000s or the or the late 2000s rather. Uh, I spend a lot of time looking at the organizational sentencing data. And I can tell you from, you know, real personal experience reviewing a lot of this data, it's pretty consistent um, for the most part year in, year out. And one of the things that is really consistent year in, year out, is the size of the organizations that get uh, in trouble for criminal conduct and end up being sentenced. And it is not what you what our perception is because our perception is warped like a lot of our perceptions is warped by the media by the coverage that uh, certain organizations get you know uh, BP when you know uh, there's a a, a, the Deepwater Horizon incident or something like that or Volkswagen which I already mentioned or Wells Fargo Uh, we tend to remember the big corporate failures from big corporate actors, organizations that have tens of thousands of employees, um, that's what gets ink. That's what gets into the newspaper. But the reality is that uh, even on a even in a year where there are not as many organizations charged and convicted of crime, and 2020 was actually sort of a slow year, if you will. It was about uh, just under 100 organizations uh, ended up getting a sentence in 2020, which is the lowest number in at least uh, a dozen years. Uh, we've had as, as high as 187 organizations back in 2012 that um, uh, received some sort of sentence that were convicted of an offense. Um, and it is, averages out to some probably somewhere around in the 130 to 150 range. As, as to the number of organizations that get charged every year. So it's not, uh, it's not a huge amount, particularly when you compare it to the number of individual uh, human beings that get charged in federal court, which is on the order of 70,000 per year. Um, but it is fairly consistent. Again, we've had a couple of down years in the last couple of years. And you know, whenever you have a turnover in the Justice Department and you have different uh, individuals and, and different philosophies, uh, that, are, uh, uh, that are taking hold in, in, in criminal prosecution, then you have fluctuations. So it's possible it could go back up again. It may remain consistent. But you know, on average, you have 130, 140 organizations that get charged every year. Um, and, and no matter how many, um, whether it's you know, 102 or 150 or nearly 200, One thing remains true, and that is that the size, the relative size of organizations that gets charged, is overwhelmingly small. And by small, I mean less than 100 employees. Uh, In uh, last year, in 2020, the figure was 77.4 organizations had less than 100 employees. Um, If you add in less than a 1,000 employees, you get close to 90%. So most of the organizations that find themselves in front of uh, a federal judge facing the worst consequences, uh, those organizations tend to be relatively small. And I think that is the one, one of the three things that I wanted to talk about today because uh, I think most small organizations don't contemplate this. And when I say small, I'm talking about less than 500 employees, which is you know like really small to medium when you look at the overall uh, number of organizations or companies in the United States, for example, um, that actually encompasses a large percentage of organizations, probably the, the vast majority. Um, but but those organizations, I think, see these headlines that talk about Walmart or talk about uh, uh, Wells Fargo or or, or, or even um, you know, organizations that don't end up being charged but but have some sort of um, misconduct or, or privacy breach or data security issue or whatever it might be, they all tend to usually be larger organizations. And so it's sort of overlooked that the real, where the rubber meets the road for real when we're talking about the worst consequences, it's the small to medium-sized organizations. So that's the first takeaway. So if you're working with an organization uh, that has you know less than a thousand employees or less than five hundred employees, uh, you need to try. You need to you know keep this in your back pocket. Dispel that notion that hey we're too small. We fly under the radar. Uh, we're not you know we're not going to attract any attention because we're we're a small fry. That is not the case. That is not the reality that we see when we look at the data. The second piece of information that I think is helpful when you're talking to your stakeholders about the importance of compliance and and the potential severe consequences of compliance uh, is that it's not just organizations that pay these huge fines and suffer suffer business consequences and reputational consequences. There are living, breathing human beings Uh, who made decisions or who failed to make decisions or who uh, knew about information and didn't report it or um, uh, actually engaged in uh, behavior that was uh, against the law intentionally, uh, what have you, uh, there are living, breathing human beings who face these consequences too. And if you look at these organizational cases, one of the data uh, data points that the sentencing commission collects is the number of individual co-defendants or actual breathing human beings who are charged in the same um, uh, set of circumstances as the organization. And what we find is again, a pretty consistent number you're in and you're out and in Uh, In 2019 it was 58.5 percent and in 2020 it was 61.7 so it pretty much always lingers on about 60 percent or you know roughly two-thirds of the time there's a living breathing human being at least one maybe many who are also facing consequences criminal consequences facing Uh, sentences. Let's uh, break it down to what it really means. Facing federal prison terms for the conduct that also ensnared the organization. I think that's a really important fact that, um, uh, again, good to have in your hip pocket when you're talking about consequences, is that when the company gets in trouble two-thirds of the time, and when we say in trouble, we mean gets in trouble enough that it gets charged and convicted of an offense so we're not talking about situations where the case was resolved short of a uh, criminal conviction, but when there's a criminal conviction for the organization, two thirds of the time there's a criminal conviction, at least one, maybe many, for an actual person as well. And that leads me to my third point that I wanted to talk about, that I think is really helpful because it leads right it leads right to the follow up question to that because what would most of your rank-and-file managers think when they heard that figure well that's the you know that's the ken scale the the, that's the uh uh, skilling or the ken lay or you know the 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 fast in the enron situation those are those high-level c-suite um uh executives who uh, either turned a blind eye to the conduct or were responsible for motivating the conduct well Again, the data is a little surprising, I think, for people who um, just kind of follow that narrative that is well-trod. And the reality is the majority of individuals, even though these are smaller organizations, the majority of individuals that are charged as co-defendants are not considered, quote-unquote, high-level. That means they are not executives of the organization they may have, and they, you know, and to have criminal liability, they probably have some authority to bind the organization in some way, signing contracts or whatever, but they are not considered high level officials. So they're not officers of the organization. They don't own the organization. They're not board members. Uh, they're not considered managers or supervisors because there's a category for managers or supervisors when they code this data. So in uh, 2020, 573 percent of individuals who also found themselves charged and convicted of a crime alongside the organization were also considered not high level they were not managers supervisors they were not board members and they were not owners so here's a way to look at it that's almost 60 you know that's nearly two-thirds there so if you combine the the two statistics together when in pretty much say 25 to 30 percent of all cases that end up in a conviction with an organization somebody who is not a manager or supervisor not a board member not an owner of the organization doesn't have an ownership stake somebody who just was doing their job presumably or thought they were doing their job or maybe didn't if they were acting fraudulently uh they are also facing a prison sentence. That's pretty sobering. That's pretty sobering. So, um, again, I think these are helpful facts to have in your hip pocket, particularly if you're at an organization with less than a thousand employees. So the first point is we're we have a target on our back as far as criminal liability goes. If an organization, demographically speaking, Uh, has a higher risk for criminal conviction it's one of those factors is going to be size that's just the reality of it Um, second point which is really important is individuals get charged too it's not you know uh, it's not one in a million it's you know again I think there's this perception that uh, uh, people who engage in business crimes you know get to skate generally and that's just not the reality that's that's not the reality of what the sentences look like too if you hone down on uh for instance fraud sentences those tend to be pretty stiff i mean we're talking about uh you know if you're talking about a loss of a few million dollars you may be looking at 50 60 months in federal prison that's not extraordinary if you have a multi-million dollar fraud where the loss is a multi-million dollars um you know uh jeff uh, uh Skilling, for example, you know, he ended up uh, getting well over 20 years initially I th- when he was sentenced uh, because of the amount of dollars engaged in the fraud, for example. So these are good little tidbits to have, again, to have in your back pocket when you're discussing consequences, because um, generally when we talk about consequences, I think we focus on the fines that the corporations face, because again, those are the headlines, right? You know, $5 billion here, $2 billion there. I mean, it's pretty significant, but it's it's so large and so remote and sort of esoteric to the day-to-day that I don't think it has the impact that talking about what sort of the real-world, everyday um, criminal consequences for organizations are, because this is not, you know, three or four – headline-grabbing Wall Street Journal, New York Times expose is about, you know, Fortune 100 companies that, you know, had a misstep. The practical reality, the year-in, year-out grind is that there's a lot, you know, hundreds, at least, at least 100, 130 organizations every year that tend to have less than a thousand employees that find themselves in front of a federal judge either pleading guilty or found guilty, most of the time pleading guilty, paying a huge fine, having other uh, uh, reputational and, and uh, restitution consequences. And two thirds of the time, there's an individual right there that's facing not only those financial consequences and reputational consequences, consequences but facing literally facing prison time, which is, is a very different thing altogether than I think how we tend to talk about these things. Because we talk about reputational risks. We talk about big fines. And we do talk about, you know, l- you know, possibility of prison. But it's very, again, I think very esoteric, very high level. This is much more concrete. And, uh, and I, think, I think it's helpful uh, to flesh it out a little bit more and make it a little bit more personal, particularly for organizations Uh, that are small to medium-sized organizations, because that's where the risk is. That's what the data tells us. That's where the risk is for these very severe consequences. So I hope that those small um, data points are helpful. There's a lot of other helpful data, I think, at uh, ussc.gov's website. Go to the research section, look under the source book, and then look for organizational sentencing data there. Uh, If you have any question about any of this, as always, Please, please feel free to drop a line to me, eric, at moreheadconsulting.com. Happy to talk about it with you. If you have questions, if you're, you know, for instance, trying to put together a presentation uh, internally on, on this information, I'm happy to uh, direct you where you might go to find some more helpful data uh, to make your case um, to, to the stakeholders about the importance of compliance and the possible, you know, real-world serious repercussions for failures, Um, uh, Also, if you are going to be in Vegas at SCCE, I am probably right in the process of putting putting in um, my bid to get a booth. Once I know what number booth that is, I'll probably mention it on a couple of these podcasts so you can come by and see us. Uh, We'll be speaking again on both uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, So please, uh, if you are either attending virtually or in person, Uh, love to have you join us at either one or both of those sessions probably going to talk about the um, code section here in a couple weeks i've been talking about code a lot on the podcast so i probably should uh, wait another week or two before we have another uh this you know two-devo discussion in code but after i put together my presentation for um, lessons learned after 60 60 code projects uh, i might go ahead and and uh, distill some of that for a podcast here in the coming weeks but until next time Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.